0: Well, good morning. We are continuing our sermon series in the Book of Acts. So if you will, turn to Acts. We are going to be in Acts 15, 16, and 17. So you'd be helped if you have a Bible. Actually, an actual Bible, because, you know, it's like big, right? You don't have to keep swiping, and then your finger won't like cramp up. There's Bibles in the back. You can just raise your hand. Someone will toss you a Bible. Um, just before we kind of get into it, a a, a short tangent confession. Um, If at any point it looks like I'm unstable up here, if at any point it looks like I'm gripping uh, the pulpit because I'm scared I'm going to fall, it's because I think I might fall. Um, I I ran in a race yesterday. Um, I blame the Murdochs for all of this. Um, and uh, so, so, if I fall at any point, I promise you I was not slain by the Spirit. I was slain by stupidity, okay? Um, but, 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 sort of, in all seriousness, um, there is something deeply troubling about not being in charge, right? You know, in your body, or just not being in charge, or, or that feeling you get when you're like, I'm not in control or things are happening and you just so desperately want to just grip for control and yet you realize, I'm just, I'm not in control of this moment. Uh, years ago, there was a handful of, uh, of us that went to a tutoring center and we were tutoring at-risk youth. And so I was helping this particular girl with her homework and I remember she was sort of dinking around and I just wanted her to finish her homework. And so I just kept, you know, trying to get her to like, okay, let's focus, let's let's finish this homework or whatever. And finally she looked me straight in the face and she said the dreaded phrase, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) You've all heard that, right? I think, in all honesty, as an adult, I've said those words, or at least I've thought those words, right? My, My guess is, that some of the most frustrating moments in our lives happen when we very much want to say, like, you're not the boss of me, right? Those moments of frustrating in our friendships, our marriages, our families, like when we're having a relationship with our boss and they do something. Those, those moments in which someone kind of, sort of exercises some level of authority over us, there's something deep inside of us that we just want to shout out. Ah, oh, you're not the boss of me. And yet, in some ways, sometimes, people are the boss of us. And so we must submit ourselves to them. Now, at that moment, at that tutoring center, that, that girl was right. I was not the boss of her. I was a volunteer. If she didn't do her homework, that, that was her prerogative. But in many ways, it, that, that sort of story illustrates a fundamental question, which is, who is the boss of us? Like if you work your way up the chain of command high enough, at the top, who is ultimately in charge? Uh, there's a very famous poet and poem. Uh, the, the poet is William Ernest Henley, and he wrote a poem called Invictus. It, it very much does sort of imbibe the, 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 the sort of attitude of the day. And it ends, and I know you've all heard it, but it ends in which the, uh, the poem sort of lands on, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I think that pretty much describes our culture, right? That there really is two ways we can describe this whole idea of who is in charge. Either we are, either we call the shots, Either we're the king of our little kingdoms or or someone else is. My wife and I love the Olympics. Love it. Can't get enough of it. It's like our favorite. But but have you noticed that when people, it's like the medal ceremony and they won, you, you see this sort of attitude all over the place, right? They stand up and they say, this was because of all my hard work. Because of all the things I did, all the sacrifices I made, I dedicate this medal basically to me. You notice that? Their Olympic destiny was in their hands. But I I think there's another story. There's a better story. A truer story. A more beautiful story. And we see that on the pages of these two and a half chapters in the book of Acts. And that is that actually it's God who's in charge of the story. God is the sort of captain of the universal ship that we're all on. So the big idea that you're going to see behind me is simply this. And it's that God advances his mission, part one, by his means, part two, through his message, part three. Mission, Mission means message. I love the M's, right? Now, this is a big chunk of scripture. We're not going to read all of it, but we're going to read lots of it. And so, uh, as we look at how God is advancing his mission, I want you to notice that, that in Acts 1, when God sort of gives the charge to the disciples, like, you're going to be my witnesses, you're going to do these sorts of things, it wasn't like, okay, now it's up to you. Actually, it wasn't up to them. They had their part to play, but ultimately God was, God is guiding the ship to its intended consequences, towards his intended purposes. So go with me to Acts chapter 15. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 36. If you remember, right, we we had the Jerusalem council and that we learned that the gospel would be without entailments. You didn't need to get circumcised in order to believe, in order to be saved. But you could just believe and turn to Jesus, believe that he really is who he says he is, and you would be saved. So that happens, right? This letter is being uh, distributed to other churches. And then we get to Paul and Barnabas, verse 36 of chapter 15. We'll start there. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, With him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the church. Now skip down to verse six of chapter seventeen or of chapter sixteen. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We'll stop there. So, starting in chapter 15, at the end of chapter 15, we have what we call Paul's second missionary journey. The first missionary journey, we we read in, uh, what was that, chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14. Paul and Barnabas went, and they, you know, sailed to Cyprus, and then to Asia Minor, and then they sailed sort of back again. And so they're going to you know, share what God has done. They're going back to strengthen the churches that they planted. And so in all this second missionary journey, it's going to be about 300 miles, which is crazy. And they're going to go, uh, Paul is going to go up through Asia Minor, and he's going to go, you know, he's going to sail across into basically Greece and then come back uh, to Athens and then back again to Syria, to Antioch. That's his second missionary journey. We're, we're only going to look at half of it today. Lord willing, we'll look at the second half next week. So we have tension. We have drama. Did you notice it starting at the end of chapter 15? So we have Paul and Barnabas, and they're strategizing this next missionary journey. And so Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark with us. Mark who, this John Mark would be the person who would write the Gospel of Mark. John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas and says, all right, let's bring him with him. And Paul's like, no way. No way. Evidently, what happened was, and you, get, uh, um, you read about it earlier, is that uh, for, for whatever reason, and we don't know the reason, on the first missionary uh, journey, John Mark leaves. Right? He, he sort of leaves... And Paul goes, I don't want him. He's a, he deserted us. I don't want him on this journey again. Now instantly, we're sort of, at least if you're anything like me, you read this and you want to assign fault. Like, who was right? Who was wrong in this conflict? Um, one commentator sort of cutely, um, I don't know if it's perfectly true, but cutely said that uh, sort of our minds go with, Our minds and our judgments go with Paul, but our heart goes with Barnabas, right? Well, the Bible and uh, the author, Luke, isn't really interested in answering all of our questions, and so there is no, like, fault assigned to either Paul or Barnabas. We don't know who was right or wrong. Really, the the, the point that we learn is that out of two came four. That's what Luke wants us to say, that, that there was just one team, and now... There's two teams, and they're just sort of going in opposite directions, doing the exact same thing, preaching the gospel. And so there goes Paul, and he takes with him Silas, and they go up to Asia Minor. And at some point, and I skipped it, they meet Timothy, and Timothy joins them. And then actually in verse 10 and 11, there's a pronoun shift from they to we, and that's when we think um, Luke, the author, actually joins up on this team as well. So, so there's quite the team here. And they're going through Asia Minor, meeting at uh, various cities, strengthening the churches, encouraging the elders, sharing the gospel. And, you know, that they've had a lot of success in Asia. And so Paul instantly is like, okay, let's go deeper into Asia, which we don't call Turkey Asia, but they called it Asia. And so let's go to sort of the northwest corner of Asia and continue to preach the gospel there. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? But but look who stops Paul's work, right? Look look who sort of hip-checks Paul, who stiff-arms him. Verse 6 and 7, God himself. Isn't that interesting? We have no idea how this happens. If if they got really sick or if somehow their donkey broke down or whatever. But somehow, it was very, very clear that they were not supposed to go to Asia. It was extremely clear that God himself didn't want them to go. So, instead of going kind of northwest up to Asia, they went west to Troas, which was a city on the Aegean Sea. And there, like we read, Paul has a vision. He has a vision of a man of Macedonia, you know, a man from Greece, who, who calls out and says, come. Help us, come over here, preach the gospel to us. And then Paul, having had this vision, instantly he says, that's where we're going, guys. So they get on a ship and travel with his whole team to what we call Greece, which is Macedonia. Now, this section, it's really interesting, okay? Because it's fraught with conflict, right? We have Paul and Barnabas, and they have, you know, you know, they, They've got team breakdown, right? They need to read those, you know, team building books because they're they just can't see it eye to eye. And then you see the conflict between, in some ways, Paul's or Paul's plans and God's plans. But the point of all of this is that God, He's still advancing His kingdom. He's still advancing. The gospel in territory that have never heard the gospel. And God is doing this. And no team squabble or conflict can squash what God himself is doing. That's the point, right? God's advancing his mission. And he's saying, nope, I don't want you to go there. And he drops a pin in Macedonia and says, that's where I want you to go. He even uses a, a vision in order to accomplish this. Remember that great promise that Jesus gives that the, that 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 I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not overtake her. Well, here in in Acts chapter 15 and 16, we we see further confirmation that God will build his kingdom. God will advance his kingdom. God will build up the church. And hell itself cannot overtake it. And yet, let's be honest. If we put ourselves for a moment in Paul's shoes... You can imagine how discouraged Paul would have been, right? He's got his plans, he's got his strategy. I, I take it Paul was a type A kind of personality, right? Just read his letters. He was intense to say the least. And so he's got his plans, he's got his flow charts, right? He, he leads nothing to chance and his plans are just gone. He, he, you can imagine the discouragement that he was going through. I mean, personally, nothing breeds discouragement that I've found more like a dream thwarted. More like a plan that just goes car pop. And yet, that's how life is, right? Right? Isn't that pretty much the exact kind of blueprint of the last year and a half? We have our plans, and yet our plans sometimes are not God's plans. And yet, even behind these closed doors is God himself. It's, Luke wants us to make it really, really clear that there's no coincidence behind this. God himself is directing these closed doors. And so, in a sort of metaphorical way, we could put it this way, by way of application, that it is always better, it is always safer, it is always wiser to go with God to Troas than to go without God to Bithynia. Amen? And yet, sort of without minimizing the discouragement, because I know, right, when we have our plans, when we're excited for those plans, right, when we see, when we have our five-year plans and our 10-year plans and our 30-year plans and, you you know, our month plan just falls apart and just ruins it all, that's discouraging. And yet, let me just encourage us, brothers and sisters, that even when our plans fall apart, God is still God. He's still in control. And it's just another reminder for us to uh, kind of humbly pray that most simple of prayers that Jesus himself modeled to us, right? Which is, Lord, your will be done, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Life often does not turn out the way we want it to. Or we thought it would. And yet, the hymnist uh, Cowper reminds us that even behind the darkest of providences is always the smiling face of God. Now, having said that, uh, I think by way of application, one thing we could think through is um, should we be praying for visions to figure out God's will? At least for me this week, as I was thinking about it, that, that was a question that I was thinking about. Like, is this the natural thing that we should do in order to figure out God's will for our lives? Well, number one, let me just, just say that, look, Paul never actually asks for a vision, right? He, he doesn't pray for a vision, it just sort of comes. But, but we know the visions do come, we, we see it here. And I have my weird, eerie stories. I'm certain that if we pass the mic, you have your weird, eerie stories that, you know, you could say are coincidental, but you know they're not coincidental. So God sometimes works in sort of mysterious ways. And yet, that's not how he always works. I also think it's interesting that Paul is not passive, right? Paul's not passively twiddling his thumb, right? The one thing Paul does know is where not to go. So that's helpful, right? But, but let me just pause here and just say, um, I think we can, even without visions, I think we can be confident in God's will. And I think this section of the book of Acts gives us at least a few things to practice in our life in order to have confidence that we are actually walking in God's will. And so I'm going to give you four. One, and they're going to be really brief, but, but one, um, normally, God actually leads us sufficiently and authoritatively by God's inerrant word. That's how God ordinarily leads us. Two, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the, um, the book of Acts, you start in... Uh, Chapter one, and at the end, time and time again, and we see it um, in these two chapters is that there's these descriptions of them praying pray, pray, and pray some more. And then, third, um, notice how often community is involved. One of the greatest ways in which to decipher if God's, you know, calling you to take one job or another job really is community. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there will be days in which I'll have a decision that seems like that monumental decision or that decision that I need to make, and I don't want to ask other people about it because I'm terrified they're going to say no, so I just do it. But those are dangerous, Right? We should be consistently walking with brothers and sisters in community and saying, hey, I've got this opportunity. Hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And having them speak into your life. There there is nothing more, uh, more encouraging and helpful in thinking about life decisions than just having a brother and sister speak into them. And then fourthly, we need wisdom, right? I mean... About an eighth of the Old Testament is wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is making wise decisions when these sort of ordinary rules don't apply, right? But, but you don't just become a wise person overnight. You don't just wake up one day and say, I've walked with, with Christ for a year, I'm now wise. No, no wisdom takes years. It takes just rhythms. It takes constantly reading God's word, sitting under God's word, living in community, listening to people, strengthening your convictions but by people who you agree with and disagree with. All of those habits and disciplines, right? Wisdom is not the person who says, I am wise. Wisdom is actually, that's the fool. Wisdom actually is the person who says, yeah, I'm not wise, but I want to be wise. And I want to consistently fight for Wisdom. So I really do think that we can, without a vision, we really can know and have confidence that God's directing us. And I would just say, pray about it. Talk about it in community. If no one is speaking about it, I think that's dangerous. Ask other people to speak into it. Pray. Read God's word. And then be the type of person that makes wise decisions because you've just saturated yourself in a wisdom community, that—that that is one definition of the church, right? It's a wisdom community. It's a learning community. Well, that's the first. God's advancing His mission, right? God's sort of funneling them to Asia. He's in charge of the mission. But now let's let's look second. Let's look at the means in which He accomplishes it. Go to, go to verse eleven. So, setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to. Somothras, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful on, uh, to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now skip down to verse 19. But when her owner saw that there uh, was hope of gain w- was gone, here, actually, skip down to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. I'll explain why they're in prison in a moment. They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prison, prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So, the foundations, um, uh, so the, the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. And the jailer called for the lights and pushed and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Um, then he, he brought them out and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he told them the same hour of night to wash their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his household. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with him and his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates said to the police saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported that these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have assent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us in prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Okay, go back to verse 11. So Paul and Silas, they set sail. And they meet a... They go to Philippi and they hear of a group, right? We see time and time again that they go to a synagogue, but evidently in Philippi there's no synagogue. And so there is... They go to the river because they hear that there are some women who are praying. And there they meet Lydia. Lydia is uh, described as uh, as a woman from Thyatira. She's a seller of... Uh, of goods, and to sort of lack nuance, she is rich, okay? But the most important thing to know about her is, is not where she comes from, and it's not how much money she has in her purse. It's that she was a God-fearer, and Paul there preaches the gospel. She responds, And then in verses 16 to 24, Paul and Cyrus, they're they're ministering in Philippi. They continue to to preach the gospel. And there's this demon-possessed girl who keeps following them. And so Paul eventually exercises the demon out of her. But problem, that was her boss's, uh, you know, that's how they got money, right? She was sort of clairvoyant. And so they turn on, right, it's one thing when the gospel just is, is preached. It's one thing when the gospel is private. But when the gospel attacks the economy or attacks your money, well, that's another thing, right? And so sort of society turns on them, and that's when they are flogged and then put in prison. So we, we have these, this, this, this amazing thing, right? They're, they're eventually then thrown in prison after this healing and Paul and Silas, they're praying. Did you see that? Okay, they, they, they're beaten. And they're praying. They're suffering. They're, they're, their bodies are still throbbing. And they're praying. I tried this when I was running yesterday. Uh, there's no way I could pray. I was just so aware of being in pain that I couldn't even talk to God. And yet here they are, singing praises to God in prison, having just been beaten. That's the sort of wherewithal that they had. And at that moment... An earthquake happens. And so the jailer's thinking, oh, no, this is done, right? They're all gone. All the prisoners are gone, and I'm going to be killed, so I might as well do it myself. And yet at that moment, Paul's like, stop. No, we're still here. So he asks that question, how might I be saved? Paul shares the gospel with him. He's saved. Eventually he's brought to their house. You know, he binds up their wounds, feeds them. And then eventually the magistrates say, okay, you can let these guys go. And Paul's like, nuh-uh, no way. There was no due process here. I'm a Roman citizen, right? And so just, th- 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 there's a couple of reasons why Paul does this. It's not just because he's ticked off. He's doing it, number one, because he wants to protect the church, too. He doesn't want this to happen to them. But then also, like, th- there is a due process going on here that... They did not follow. Well, you know, eventually they're let out. They go back, meet up with Lydia and the new Christians. They minister, encourage them. And then, you know, starting in chapter 7, they're off to Thessalonica. Okay, amazing stories. A string of stories, right? We have this Macedonian vision. Then we have Lydia and others becoming Christians in Philippi. Then we have the healing um, and the exorcism of this demon from this slave girl. And then we have this earthquake. We have the conversion of this jailer. I mean, it's an amazing story, right? Absolutely amazing. But, but notice, notice who's sort of in charge. Did you notice the description that Luke uses, our author, in how Lydia came to faith? And the Lord opened up her heart. And then it's of no coincidence that then God, you know, you know they, they find themselves in jail and then the jailer responds to the gospel message. I mean, Paul and Silas say they had their job. They had their role. It's still our role. We have four roles. It's like the four Ps, right? We have four Ps. We, we pray, we pursue, we persuade, and we preach. That's sort of our job, right? The four Ps. We continue to to pray the gospel, to persuade people of the gospel, to preach the gospel, to pursue people with the gospel. But at the end of the day, God's job is to open up their eyes, open up their heart. And we see that time and time again, God transforming people, the most unlikely of people, a jailer, and this woman, and all of this group. But I want by way of application, then, to talk about... There's at least two wonderful descriptions of what a transformed life looks like. Like, what happens when you meet Christ, you're converted to Christ, you start worshiping Christ. What are the sort of outward manifestations of that newness of life? There's at least two here. There's actually more, but I'm just going to point out two. The first is baptism, right? Lydia and the prison jailer, they are baptized, right they meet Christ they respond in faith and then they are baptized so so baptism is that outward display of that inward transformation it's like putting on the team jersey it's saying i'm with team jesus it's you know following jesus is always personal but following jesus is never private the the, the new testament and christianity in general knows no such thing as a private Christianity, it's always public. And what baptism is, it's going public with your profession of faith. It's saying, I want to tell people that I am following Jesus, that Jesus has changed my life and I'm with Jesus. And we see here time and time again, all through the book of Acts and here in two occasions, that when they meet Jesus, when they put their faith and trust in Jesus, they then respond with baptism. So, so if you haven't been baptized, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're not baptized, if you haven't displayed it publicly, let me just encourage you to come talk with me after the service. Come talk to me. We would love to start a conversation about what it could look like to publicly testify to your following Jesus. So, so, so that's the, the first sort of outward display of a transformed life. But I want to point out one more that we see with both Lydia and the jailer, right? Lydia, did you see that after, you know, she responds and she's baptized, she, it says, uh, if you've judged me faithful, um, verse 15, come to my house and stay. Did you notice that? That's, that's not a throwaway. And then if you go to the jailer, right, he, he responds in faith, he's baptized, and then he says, come to my house. And he has dinner with them. He binds up their wounds. We can use many words to describe this, but this is hospitality, right? That's what's going on here, right? One of the most outward responses to being transformed by Jesus is you want to bring people into your life, into your homes. Not a perfect home, but an ordinary home. I mean, there's quite the, the contrast here. Lydia probably had a nice house. This jailer, his house is attached to the jail. I mean, I'm guessing it did not smell well. Not great ventilation. It says he has a family, so I'm guessing the Legos were everywhere. And yet it didn't matter. He just naturally wanted to invite these brothers and sisters, these new Christians, and invite them into his home. And in an ordinary way, he just wanted to live life with them, share a meal with them. That's what it's like when you're transformed by Jesus. You just want to bring people into your life, to live life with them, with Christian and non-Christian. I, I was reminded of this the other day, that there was a, um, a, a, a neighbor kid who came to our house for dinner, and we were having dinner, and at our house, pretty much every night that we're having family dinner, we, um, we pull out a card, or I ask a question, and everyone has to answer that question. It's often, they're like, you know, just stupid questions that are kind of funny, like, you know, what's your favorite season and why, or what's your favorite gift that you've given, Right? And so we're sort of going around and we are, we're about to share um, these questions and, you know, I pray first and, um, you know, if someone, and you're not sure if they're a Christian and they ever come to your table and you're going to pray before, don't pray and thank God for the meal. That's fine prayer, but don't, don't pray that prayer, okay? Here's my encouragement to you. This is a freebie. Just pray the gospel, okay? They're hungry. They're a captivated audience. Pray a simple gospel presentation, Okay? You got him there? You're about to feed him. Give him Jesus, okay? So, prayed. And then we were like, kind of like, you know, going around sharing a question. And and I remember uh, they they were saying at the very end as we were like, kind of laughing and, you know, answering some question. I remember them turning and saying, "Do you, do you ask do you, do you answer questions every night?" And I remember just thinking how ordinary it is to just sit around a table and ask questions to get in each other's lives. And then I remember how ordinarily amazing that is and how much of a grace that can be in people's lives to just live your life around a table. Right? Our our kitchen table has dents in it. Our kitchen table has grooves in it. And it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter. Some of the best hospitality I've ever seen are college students, right? And they practice it amazing, and yet you walk into it, and there is a musty smell, right? You walk in there, and you're like, I don't know if I want to go to the bathroom in that bathroom, right? And yet, they intentionally uh, are just thinking about how can I make this helpful? I remember walking one time, and this is when Pandora was a thing, right? And they put Pandora, and they put Enya on because they thought, oh, yeah, adults would like to Enya, And I was like, you know, as stupid as that, that is, they were really trying to be hospitable to adults who were coming in thinking, I think that's what old people live, listen to. They listen to Enya and Celtic music or something. Well, let me just tell you by, by way of application that, that Lydia and this jailer, they, they just are so transformed by the gospel that they just want to live their lives. And it doesn't matter if you have a nice house or even have a house. It's just trying to put yourself with other people and live life with them in the ordinariness of your life and just seeing God do miraculous things. Well, first, God advances his mission. He does so through the Holy Spirit, by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the means here. God is the agent of change here. But let's, third and lastly, let's look at the message, right? Let's look at the message. Because the message is a supernatural message about God. The power of the resurrection about Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. So, if we go to chapter 17, Paul leaves for uh, he leaves Philippi and goes to Thessalonica, and then he goes to Berea, and then finally to Athens. We're going to look primarily at Athens, but uh, you'll notice that he he does basically the same thing, right? He goes, he goes to the synagogues, he goes to the people, he he preaches the gospel. There's a response. In Thessalonica, people want to kill him, so he goes to Berea. The response there is better, but then those in Thessalonica follow him to Berea, and then he's off to Athens. And we'll take it up in um, Paul in Athens, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was awaiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying... May we now may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their times in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I am past." For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I will proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God, perhaps, um, perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he actually does not, is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to, to think that the divine being is of gold or silver or stone, an image formed by, by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance come uh, have come and they've overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this has given assurance to us by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So, Paul went... Out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus, the Arab, Arab uh uh which is not a correct pronunciation, but we're gonna go with it, and a woman whose name is Demarius, and others with them. All right, we'll stop there. So, this is a fascinating. I wish we had like two hours on Paul's sermon and what he's doing here. But but notice that if you think of, just think of Stephen's sermon, just, just think of Paul's sermon in other places, this is very, very different, isn't it? It's a very different sermon. He doesn't, like, open up the Old Testament and say, with our patriarchs, and he doesn't, like, march through a biblical theology of the Old Testament. He doesn't do that. He actually is sort of the backdrop of this is Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. And so what he's doing is he's giving a framework for those in Athens to be able to engage in this, uh, in sort of a biblical worldview. Athens was a lot like Puyallel, right? Athens was a lot like America. It was a pluralistic society, right? It had a lot of religions, a lot of worldviews, and they would come and you would discuss them and all were equal and so they had all of these idols and you saw Paul walking into Athens and his you know, his soul is is just disturbed by how many idols there are. We we learn of two sort of worldviews there, which are the Stoics and the Epicureans. Doesn't matter what they believed. The point is that there are all these idols, and they worship all these gods. And there was this worldview that was very very different than a Jewish worldview. And so the message that Paul preaches, right, the only message is that anyone is saved. So let me be clear. The only message that any person can be saved, when that jailer asked, how can I be saved? The message is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know, what does it mean when Christians talk about the gospel, when they talk about how you are saved? Well, the simple answer is, it's Jesus who lived and who died so that we can have a relationship with him. Because we're sinners and need to be saved. That's the message. But you see, there needed to be some sort of pre-evangelism that took place because Athenian culture just, they didn't even have an understanding. And Paul didn't want to be misunderstood. And so it sort of reminds me of the 20th century evangelist and theologian Francis Schaeffer, who who I loved when he said that if I had an an hour with sort of a, a modern person, I would spend 50 minutes on trying to explain the bad news of Christianity, which I think is what Paul does, right? He, t- he, he spends almost all his time talking about um, kind of deconstructing the Athenian worldview, and then eventually he gets to the gospel. That's Francis Schaeffer, right? We need sometimes 50 minutes to explain why people even need Jesus, why they're even a sinner. And so that's what Paul does, right? He starts, verse 22, by affirming their religious fervor, He goes on to say, okay, I was walking and I saw that there was this altar and it just said to an unknown God, right? That's how superstitious the Athenian culture was, right? They were like, well, we don't want to offend. We have all these gods. We've got Zeus. We've got Artemis. We've got all these other gods, but but maybe we forgot one. So we'll just say, call him the unknown God. And so Paul says, what you don't know, I know. I know the name of that unknown God and it's God himself. And he is the creator. He is self-existent. He created all people, right? The Athenians had a hierarchy, right, of society, right? There are the upper class and lower class, and Paul says, "No, no, 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 no. There is one class: the human race, and all human race are alienated to God because of their sin." And he kind of just builds it to saying, you know, you, you are alienated from God, and God will eventually judge the world, and He's going to do it by a man. Verse 31, who rose from the grave, Jesus Christ. And then we get this amazing response, right? Some mocked. They're like, you're a babbler. You, you know, I and others believed. And that always is the response to preaching the message of the cross and the message of the resurrection. Some mock. Others respond in belief. But, but notice, I think Paul, and in this message, and so much could be said, but notice what Paul does as it relates to how he preaches the gospel to this culture. He doesn't make fun of the culture. Right? He, he pokes holes in it, but he says, hey, I see that you're very religious. He, he, he's kind. So, so in one sense, he doesn't just like throw grenades and try to blow up the culture. But, but in another way, he doesn't become like culture. Instead, he becomes a learner of culture. I think Paul teaches us the sort of attitude we should have towards culture, which is to learn, to to learn what the idols are in our culture so that we can be better better prepared to speak prophetically about the gospel of Jesus Christ to our culture. I think we should have an attitude of, of learning and say, hey, I want to know your story so that we can be better equipped to present the gospel story to their particular story. I mean, I, I, I can remember stories where I've sat down with, with uh, a particular guy who, who was gay. And, he was, and I just said, can I just know your story? And he told me a story about never being approved. And I remember, oh, it's, I know exactly how to share the gospel with you right now. Because I have a God who approves of us in Jesus Christ. But that was much more effective because I first wanted to learn his story. That's what I think Paul teaches us. That we should have an attitude to learn about our culture. What those idols are so that we can be better equipped when we're in those spheres of influence to say, Hey, let me tell you. Let me, let me, let me speak. Let me poke some holes how, you know, how this is not going to be great. Like, oh, I can just tell, like, you worship money. Let me just tell you how that is not going to work for you in the end. And then let me tell you about Jesus who talked a lot about money. Right? Was it prophet? A man? who gains the world that forfeits its soul. Well, this is amazing, right? In this whole section, we have God who advances his mission. He does so through his spirit. He does so through his power of the Holy Spirit himself who converts people time and time again. And he does it through the message that all of us are called to live by and continue to preach, which is nothing short of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul does. It's the only message that we've got continually to point people time and time again to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There, there, there really is only two ways to live. There's a great track called Two Ways to Live, and there's only two ways. Either I'm king or Jesus is king. And it's really, really clear, Luke's point is Jesus is king.